Season 2, Episode 40. C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics. Hey everyone. I know you've had quite a lot of episodes recently, since Matt and I were publishing every day that we were at the conference, but I thought rather than skip a Tuesday, I thought I would share with you the talk which I gave in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the end of our trip. It's entitled C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics. And in it, I basically tell the story of Jack's life and the interplay of his reason and his imagination and how he uses both of these in his evangelistic work. I hope you enjoy it. So I want to introduce our speaker this evening. David Bates is kind enough to come here and speak for us. He was just at the C.S. Lewis Symposium um, yesterday? Yes. And so David Bates knows a lot about C.S. Lewis. <laughs> He's a very big fan. He's the author of Restless Pilgrim blog. If you want to follow his blog, it's called Restless Pilgrim. And he also is the co-host of Pints with Jack, um, which is a C.S. Lewis podcast. So please welcome David Bates. Do you hear me okay now? That works? Okay, is that better? Or am I now not going through it at all? I like it better that way. Do you like it better without the mic? We can do it without the mic? Yeah? Okay. I'll just shout. This is how the British conquered the world. We just went to other, other countries and just started shouting. Okay. So, good evening, everyone. And thank you very much for inviting me to come and speak to you tonight about one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis who was a phenomenal author, uh, probably best known for his Chronicles of Narnia, which have been world bestsellers, uh, translated into ridiculous number of languages, as well as adapted into movies. And about nine months ago, Netflix just bought the lot. So you can expect it to see, see it up there at some point. As you can hear from my accent, I was born in England, which is why I sound this great. And I will tell you that when I'm out speaking, I recognize the moment when people's eyes go slightly glazed and glassy, and I can tell that they've stopped listening to what I'm saying, and they're just letting the beautiful sounds wash over them. There are a lot of wonderful consequences to being English. One is a genetic predisposition to loving tea. I was also taught sports that Americans don't understand, like cricket and rugby. Cricket is just basically baseball, but even more boring. And uh, naturally, when I reached the appropriate age, my parents sent me to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I'm sure you are familiar with the biographies of my life by J.K. Rowling. There are some slight name changes, but it's basically all true. And I now live in San Diego, California. Pretty much I left England because I felt I didn't deserve any more rain. Uh, and there I go to a Byzantine parish, and I was delighted to find that there's one right here. Uh, as you heard, I have a blog, restlesspilgrim.net, where I write about sacred scripture, church history, apologetics, and the subject for tonight, C.S. Lewis. And you can find all the other talks that I've given on that website. It's also on a, a podcast stream called Theology with an English Accent. And as you heard, I also co-host a podcast called Pints with Jack. Together with my co-host, 
we go chapter by chapter through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'll, I'll explain the meaning behind the name a little later. As you also heard, I was in North Carolina already. I was at the C.S. Lewis conference in Montreat, and we just had wonderful, wonderful C.S. Lewis speakers. You really should have gone. If for no other reason, then you would have heard far better speakers than what you're going to hear tonight. Actually, did anybody else go to there? No, no, excellent, this is good, because I stole most of the material from the stuff that was covered this weekend. So you, if you like, you can think of this as a conference doggy bag. It's a little bit of all of the best parts. Now, the title for tonight's talk is C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics. Which begs the question, why speak about C.S. Lewis? What is this Byzantine Catholic doing talking excitedly about an Anglican who lived back in England? And when I was putting that question to myself, as to how I would explain it, I was put in mind of a second century document from the early church. It's called the Martyrdom of St. Polycarp, who is one of my all-time favorite saints. And the author of the martyrdom at the end, after he's described Polycarp's death, he describes how the church in the town, in Smyrna, how they would gather together on his feast day, on the day that he was martyred, and celebrate. They would celebrate the Eucharist. And he says, we celebrate Polycarp in order to commemorate the heroes that have gone before and to train the heroes yet to come. And honestly, I can't think of a better explanation as to why I love talking about C.S. Lewis to commemorate a hero who has gone before me and who has made such a difference in my life, and also to help train the next generation of saints, the next generation of evangelists and apologists. So despite never actually joining the Catholic Church, I think there's a lot that we can learn from C.S. Lewis. Not only can we learn from his own journey of faith, we can see the different ways in which he engaged the culture of his time and try and explain how it was that this Oxford professor would become one of the best known and most effective evangelists of the 20th century. Since I was in North Carolina, I was just dropping off my co-host at the airport this morning, and I swung by the Billy Graham Museum. Uh, no, Billy Graham Library, that's what they call it. And I was reminded that Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis met. These were two great evangelists. And I went to Graham's grave and prayed for him and asked him to pray for me. I didn't tell anyone. So when I give a talk, I like to give a rough outline as to what I'm attempting to do, because I'm sure that there will be deviations, particularly when I'm talking about someone that I love as much as Lewis. We're going to open in prayer, and then we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about the life of C.S. Lewis, because it's really important to understand everything else that's going to come afterwards. And just to familiarize ourselves, with his journey of faith. And then once I've done that, I'm going to speak a little bit about the arguments that he offered in some of his apologetics books. And then also going to talk about his other evangelistic work. And then we're going to close and do a little bit of Q&A. But let's begin in prayer. And I'd like to begin with a prayer of the Byzantine Church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell with us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said, we're going to spend a good bit of time tonight talking about Lewis's life. Because he led a really interesting life, and we're going to get to see the journey that he went on. And it's going to make sense of some of the writings that we're going to talk about afterwards, and the arguments that he uses. So it's quite common to imagine that C.S. Lewis was this refined Englishman. And as much as I would like to claim him as an Englishman, he wasn't. He was actually born in Belfast in Northern Ireland in 1898. His father was a solicitor. His mother was quite an amazing woman because she had a degree in mathematics, which was incredibly unusual. And from the age of four, Lewis started doing something rather odd. He insisted on being called Jack. He had a dog that was unfortunately killed. And from then onwards, he refused to respond to any other name other than Jack, a four-year-old. So from the very earliest years, he was shown to have quite a strong will, I think you might say. I mention that in particular because I'm probably going to be calling him Jack and Lewis interchangeably in this talk. And if I don't explain that, everybody gets really confused. And they, at the end, say, I really like the stuff that you said about Lewis. And this Jack guy was also amazing. But who was he? Here's how Lewis describes his childhood. He says there were books in the study, books in the drawing room, books in the cloakroom, books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing, books in the bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder in the cistern, attic, books of all kinds reflecting every transient stage of my parents' interests, books readable and unreadable, books suitable for children, and books emphatically not. Nothing was forbidden to me. In the seemingly endless rainy afternoons, I took volume after volume from the shelves. I had always the same certainty of finding a book that was new to me as a man who walks into a field of finding a new blade of grass. From his earliest years, Jack was exposed to all kinds of literature, and his mind, it was fostered and nurtured and grown. This is one of the themes that we're going to see tonight, Lewis's rational response when defending Christianity. But he had another side to his personality as well, his imagination. And that also demonstrated itself very, very early in his young life because he had a brother called Warney, affectionately nicknamed as Badger. And the two of them actually had an, an imaginative collaboration. They invented this fictitious land that they called Boxen, and it was populated by talking animals. Those of you who love the Chronicles of Narnia, you might see a little bit of foreshadowing. Whereas some children might draw a few pictures, maybe write a story about their made-up land, these brothers they assembled histories, histories and genealogies, extensive maps and pictures as they explored this imaginative world that they had built for themselves. So they had quite an idyllic childhood, but it all came to an end very quickly. When Lewis was nine, his mother was diagnosed and very quickly, soon afterwards, died of cancer. Lewis wrote in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. I'm going to be quoting it a lot tonight. He says, with my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. And following his mother's death, he grew distant from his father, and that would continue for pretty much the rest of their lives. And his father actually sent him to boarding school, much like his brother, Warney, at the age of nine, ten. 
and he sent him to boarding school in England, which he absolutely hated. Again, Jack, just breaking my heart. But in his biography, he says, the strange English accents with which I was surrounded seemed like the voices of demons. But what was worse was the English landscape. I have made up the quarrel since, but at that moment, I conceived a hatred for England, which took many years to heal. And so Lewis passed through a number of different schools. He hated most of them. And actually, the headmaster of the first school that he was sent to was soon after sent to an insane asylum. But he was eventually brought to a private tutor, a man named William T. Kirkpatrick. He had actually taught Lewis's father, and he had also prepared his brother Warney for his entrance exams. And the three of them affectionately called him the Great Knock. And it was here that Lewis really intellectually flourished. Because not only did he learn much about language and literature, his debate and reasoning skills were truly sharpened under Kirkpatrick. Lewis said of him, if ever there was a man who came near to being a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. And for the Star Trek fans among you, I find that really, really funny. Because in Star Trek, the purely logical entity is Spock, not Kirk. His relationship with Kirkpatrick and the development of his intellect and his reasoning skills and his debating skills, I think it's best summarized in his very first meeting with the Great Knock. Lewis got off the train and he was met by Kirkpatrick. And he just was trying to make some small talk. So he told his new tutor that he was quite surprised by the scenery of Surrey. He said it was much wilder than he had expected. Stop, said Kirkpatrick, and they immediately stopped. What do you mean by wildness? And on what grounds had you for not expecting it? It's just a throwaway comment. And Lewis said that he replied that he didn't know. He was just making conversation. And he says that Kirkpatrick just tore him to shreds. He said that uh, having analyzed my terms, Kirk was proceeding to deal with my proposition as a whole. On what had I based my expectations about the flora and geography of Surrey? Was it maps, photographs, or books? I could produce none. It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I had called my thoughts needed to be based on anything. Kirkpatrick told him, do you not see then that you had no right to have any opinion whatsoever on the subject? Now just think for a moment how you might respond to a throwaway comment and have it analyzed and ripped to shreds. Lewis wrote, some boys might not have liked it, but to me, it was red beef and strong beer. And this is what he went through in his tutelage with Kirkpatrick for several years. Now, Lewis had been raised in a nominal Christian household, a Church of Ireland household. But over the course of his schooling, he had progressively lost his faith. And all of this was buttressed by his time with Kirkpatrick, who himself, a son of a minister, was also an atheist. And there were two main reasons that we see in Lewis's writings for why he lost his faith. There are more, but one of the things that really rubbed him the wrong way, he read the classics, the pagan classics, and he was told by his teachers that paganism was all wrong, but Christianity was all true. And that felt kind of wrong to him because he saw truth even in some of these pagan myths. And he asked himself, what makes Christianity so special? And so he just lumped the two in together. He thought of them all as myths. He described them as lies, but breathed through silver. The other issue that he had was the problem of pain. 
And given what I've told you already about the early death of his mother, him being sent away to boarding school and absolutely hating it, you can see why he would head on this trajectory. He would often quote an Epicurean poet named Lucretius, who said, had God designed the world, it would not be so frail and faulty as we see. So that was his childhood. And when speaking about adulthood, you have a, a decision to make. When do you demarcate that distinction between childhood and adulthood? And for Lewis, I think it's quite easy. It was his 19th birthday, because on his 19th birthday, he arrived at the front lines of the trenches of World War I. And after seeing countless death and destruction, he was wounded. A British shell fell a little too short, and it killed two of his comrades and wounded Lewis, and he was sent back to England. And when he returned, he went and looked after a lady by the name of Janie Moore and her daughter, Maureen. Janie was the mother of one of Lewis's comrades. They had gone through basic training together, and these two teenage boys had agreed that if the other died, the other would look after them. And Lewis kept his promise for the rest of his life, even though Janie turned out to be an incredibly difficult woman to live with, particularly in her later years. Teenagers. <laughs> I, was, I was nowhere near that mature. Now, Lewis attended Oxford University, where he excelled. He got multiple degrees in Greek and Latin literature, which is called Moderations, philosophy and ancient literature, uh, which is called Greats, and then finally in English. He was actually terrible, terrible at mathematics, and you see that throughout his life. He's always getting numbers wrong. But thankfully, his military service granted dispensation for those exams, which would have otherwise kept him out of Oxford and brought to a very quick conclusion his career. So I said that he became an atheist through his schooling. I think he efficiently declares it about the age of 15. But after he'd returned from the war, he became increasingly dissatisfied with atheism, both intellectually and imaginatively. One of the imaginative elements was that throughout his life, he'd found that he'd experienced these brief moments that he found very hard to explain. He called it joy. He sometimes used the German word, Zehnsuch. And Zehnsuch is this ephemeral, mysterious joy and excitement that just bubbles up in you momentarily. But the sooner it's come, the sooner it's gone. And this joy, this is what is referred to in the title of his spiritual biography, surprised by joy. And he started to see these moments of joy as signposts pointing to something beyond the material world something greater and something transcendent. And something else happened. He said his books started turning against him. All of the books written by atheists, people that he should really be well aligned with, he found that they lacked depth. Whereas he said that he could feed on the religious authors, whether they were ancient ones like Plato and Virgil, or more modern ones like George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton. In his autobiography, Lewis gives this warning. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. I said that he had initially embraced atheism. One of the reasons was that he saw the cruel and unjust nature of the universe. However, in mere Christianity, he would later argue, how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. 
What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And it was through this philosophical argumentation. He eventually evolved through a number of different systems before he became a theist. He believed in God. And some of these arguments were like the one that I just quoted. He started seeing that if we're going to talk about morality, about things being right and wrong, there needs to be something transcendent in which to ground that. He also started realizing that he was rebelling against his own mind. Because if the mind is purely matter, purely just buzzing atoms, why on earth would he expect it to lead him to truth? So he eventually finally gave in and said that there was a God. Here's how he writes it. You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I most earnestly desired not to meet. I eventually gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And he did eventually become a Christian, but before we can really talk about that, we need to talk about Lewis's friends. Because there are presentations and perceptions of Lewis out there as seeing him as this isolated, stoic academic. Has anybody watched the movie Shadowlands? Good, it's terrible, don't watch it. <laughs> and they really pushed this idea. But Lewis, he loved good conversation, good beer, and good tobacco. Uh, as an aside, I recently came across a biography that said that Lewis smoked 60 cigarettes a day. Now, I'm marginally better at mathematics than Jack, so I sat down and did a few calculations. Assuming that he was awake for 14 hours a day, and assuming it takes about five minutes to smoke a cigarette, which I think is pretty generous, that meant that he spent a third of his life, waking life, smoking. About two years ago, I went and visited the Kilns, which was his house in Oxford. And in the common room, the living room, they said that they had painted the walls, but they said they purposefully left the ceiling as it was. And you can see it stained yellow from all of the nicotine. So gross. But Lewis's friends. One of his friends that he met when he was a student at Oxford was a guy called Owen Barfield. And they had what he called their great war. They were friends who cared about the same things, but disagreed about them virulently. And he said what Barfield cured him of was his chronological snobbery. And this is something that Lewis would write a lot about when he was later a Christian. Because chronological snobbery says, new is better. Old ideas are bad, just simply because they were done in the past. They're out of date. We have newer, better ideas. The idea that we always progress towards something better. But one of his other friends was a man I'm sure you've heard of, J.R.R. Tolkien. This is the author of The Lord of the Rings. And if you really love The Lord of the Rings, you have Lewis to thank for him. Because Lewis was the guy who badgered Tolkien again and again to finish his work and encouraged him because he saw the value in it. Tolkien would have given up many times over or just procrastinated. And the two men were similar in a lot of ways and very different in a lot of ways. When they first met, uh, Lewis was still a virulent atheist, whereas Tolkien was a devout Catholic and had been his entire life. Uh, Tolkien took great care in his physical appearance, always wore bright waistcoats, hair immaculate, and every description you ever hear of Lewis is the fact that he looked like a scruffy farmer or a student. 
But this dynamic between the two of them produced so much amazing literature in England. Uh, Diana Glyer, she's written this book called Bandersnatch, and she argues that the two of them form a dyad. The fact that when you bring people together who care about things greatly but are a little different from each other, they push one another to greatness. And the two of them together were the heart of the Inklings. The Inklings were a group they would meet on Tuesday mornings in a pub called The Eagle and Child, affectionately known by locals as The Bird and Baby. And they would talk about philosophy, theology, university politics. And they would meet on Thursday nights in Lewis's rooms at Magdalen College. And there they would share manuscripts with one another of what they were writing. And this grew out of Lewis and Tolkien's relationship because the two of them had previously been meeting on Mondays at Tolkien's room at the college. And then afterwards they would go to lunch at the Eastgate Hotel. And it was after about a year Tolkien invited Lewis to read a, a poem about Baron and Luthien. If you've read the Silmarillion, you'll see it in there. And Lewis went home and read it, loved it, and immediately wrote him a little note saying that he'd enjoyed it so much and he'd enjoyed enjoyed it just as much as if he had just come across it by some anonymous author. P.S. Further notes will be forthcoming with quibbles and suggestions. <laughs> a little bit later, Tolkien receives another note from Lewis. I say note. It was 14 pages of suggestions, changes, and he'd even rewritten large parts of it. But Tolkien actually appreciated that one more. more than the initial letter of thanks and it's this dynamism that was at the heart of the inklings and all these great authors and writers and thinkers as they met together and inspired one another and pushed one another on and this is why in my podcast we call ourselves pints with jack because the jack in question is cs lewis and pints well they would meet at the eagle and child on tuesday mornings and talk which is why also our episodes release on tuesday mornings So a little earlier we dealt with the problem of pain and I said that the other issue that Lewis had with Christianity was that he thought it was just like any of the other pagan myths lies breathed through silver pretty stories but ultimately untrue and it was actually Tolkien and another member of the Inklings Hugo Dyson who set Lewis on the right track they met for dinner and then went for a long walk along Addison's walk and spoke about myth Tolkien and Dyson managed to show Lewis that he had been enjoying all of these other myths and he'd always pushed Christianity away because of its claims. And he said that Christianity works like these other myths but with one very important difference. It's actually true. They said that for centuries before Christianity, the pagans had been intuiting this idea of a dying and rising god. They knew that they needed rescuing. but in Jesus of Nazareth myth became fact and it really really happened and that cleared lewis's last obstacle away to faith and he writes that a little bit later i know very well when but hardly how the final step was taken i was driven to whipsnade one sunny morning when i set out i did not believe that jesus christ is the son of god and when we reached the zoo i did after that final intellectual issue had been cleared away he was now free to accept jesus now lewis's literary output was prodigious 
He wrote about 30 books. There are more that were released posthumously. And it was across every single genre that you could imagine. Apologetics, fairy tales, science fiction, essays, autobiography, poetry, and anthologies. And he also did his academic work of literary criticism. You might say he was a jack of all genres. I, I appreciated the groan over here. <laughs> that, was, that, that meant more to me than the, the laughter over here. But he received great acclaim. Did you know, actually, no, he was on the cover of Time magazine as a result of writing the Screwtape Letters. He was offered a CBE, which is the award that's just below a knighthood, which he turned down. And he also founded the Agape Fund, which he used to funnel all of the money that he made so that it could be given away. He gave away about two-thirds of everything that he earned to those in need. And a lot of people only found out the source of the money that they had been receiving anonymously a long time after his death. Lewis also addressed the nation on the radio during World War II. And I'm going to speak about that a little bit more later. And also during World War II, there were multiple children who came and stayed at the kilns. They were evacuated from London. Again, those of you who know the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe can see where that might have come from. He was also a prolific letter writer. One of his friends back in Ireland, a guy called Arthur Greaves, with whom he shared a great love for Norse myth. The two of them corresponded their entire lives. We have a massive volume containing most of their letters. They corresponded for 50 years. He also received an avalanche of fan mail, particularly after the release of the Chronicles of Narnia, from children. And Jack felt that if someone was going to take the time to write him a letter, they deserved a response. And actually, that was how he met his wife. His wife, Joy Davidman Grisham, she wrote to Lewis because she had read some of his books. At the time, she was coming out from being an atheistic communist, and she was starting to consider Christianity. And she read Lewis's books, but she still had more questions. So she sent him a letter. And she was amazed at how, how he refuted her arguments, but also how gently he did it, how winsome he was. And the two of them started up a strong pen friendship. And she eventually came to England while she was researching for a book, because she herself was a writer and a poet of quite some rank. And she eventually moved there with her two sons, Davy and Douglas. And I actually got to hang out with Douglas this past few days. So they moved to England, and they stayed there for a good while. And because of some things that were happening in the country, it actually looked like they were going to be deported. So Jack offered her a paper marriage so she and the boys could stay in England. And then a little while after that, Joy, it was discovered that she had cancer, just like his mother. And Lewis writes about this beautifully. He says that there's nothing that spurs on love like a rival. And he says, death is the ultimate rival. He realized his depth of feelings for his friends, and so they were married at her hospital bed by one of Jack's friends called Vicar. And not only were they now really married, the Vicar laid hands on her because he had been known in the past to pray for people and for them to get well. And that's actually what happened. Joy's cancer cleared up, and it remained that way for about three years, three happy years that they had together before the cancer eventually returned and took her life. And the funny thing I, f I discovered today, I was reading in preparation for this, that was actually the same hospital where my dad died. 
And in response to Joy's death, Lewis wrote his book, A Grief Observed. Earlier, he had written The Problem of Pain, which is more of an academic argumentation regarding as to how can there be a good God and we still have suffering, pain and death. But A Grief Observed is much, much more personal. Lewis, he wrote it very soon after his wife's death, and he asked for it to be published under another name, N.W. Clark. And Douglas told us a story this weekend. He said, during that time, it was ridiculous. You went into any room in the house, and there were at least four copies of this book. Because Jack's friends would be at the bookstore, they would see this book, flick through it, and think, oh, I think this would really help Jack. <laughs> and since he never gave away any present, he would always keep them. So they were strewn all across the house. Lewis died on the 22nd of November, 1963. And his death was overshadowed. Does anyone know why? Does that date sound familiar? Kennedy died. And also Aldous Huxley. So earlier I said that Lewis addressed the nation on the radio during World War II. And he was invited to speak to the nation on Christianity. This was back in the days when the BBC actually had some respect for Christianity. Soapbox topic for another time. <laughs> and these radio talks were very popular. And they were later published and collected together in a book known as Mere Christianity. And in this book, Lewis argues for the existence of God and the basic tenets of Christian belief. And Christian belief that's common to all denominations. That's where the, the name mere Christianity comes from. And so now that we've spoken about Jack's life, I'd like to just briefly outline some of the arguments that he, that he brings in this book and also in his subsequent apologetics. Jack didn't begin his radio talks or this book by talking about the Bible or Christianity. He begins with common experience. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this. How do you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He's not doing you any harm. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. And Lewis explains that when we hear people say things like this, what they're saying isn't simply that what the other person is doing is inconvenient to us, although we just don't like it. It's the idea that there is some standard of behavior that that person has violated. And it's a standard that they should know about. He says it's sort of like there would be no point in saying that a footballer this is soccer, if you're American. There would be no point in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless we could agree that there were rules of football. And over subsequent chapters, Lewis, bit by bit, starts looking at the possible sources for this moral law. In Catholicism, we would call this natural law. The idea that there is a, a law written by God on our hearts that we know we must follow. And he responds to objections, like people saying, well, isn't this just instinct? And Lewis says, no, because he says that we have conflicting instincts. If you are walking along a riverbank and you hear somebody shouting, help, help, and they're drowning, he says you're going to have two instincts, one that says you should help them, and the other that says you should look after yourself, because you might get hurt if you try and save them. And he says the moral law is a thing that says 
that you should help them. Because he points out that in that scenario, your stronger instinct might not be to try and help. Your stronger instinct might be to run away. So he says this moral law judges between these instincts. And in typical Lewis style, he gives an analogy. He, he gives a picture to help people understand what he's talking about. He says, it's like that the moral law is the tune. It's like the sheet music. And our instincts are merely the keys. And so he builds this argument up progressively. And he even says, we're still a long way from talking about the God of Christianity. All we've said is that there is this moral law and there's something behind it. Over the course of mere Christianity, Lewis then builds subsequent arguments for the God of monotheism, Jesus, and then ultimately the Trinity. And there's one other argument that he gives in the book, which is my personal favorite for the existence of God. He doesn't put it forward in a syllogism, in rigorous philosophical terms. But I remember the first time I read this and my heart went, yes. And remember what I said about Jack's search for joy, not his wife, but that senzut, that ephemeral something that he occasionally felt he could almost touch, but not quite. And he begins by saying that this world lets us down. And he says that there are three possible responses to it. One is the materialist, the hedonist. The person that says, well, if my wife is going to let me down, my job is going to let me down, my car is going to let me down, uh, I don't have enough money, well, just go and get new things. Get a new wife, a new car, get more money, and that will make everything okay. And we have lots of examples in our celebrity culture of showing that no, that doesn't fix the problem. He says the second way you might respond to this is just being a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more stoic, and just realizing that the world's going to let you down, keep your expectations low. But he says there's a third way of responding. And he says this is the Christian response. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he goes on to say that the things of this world, they're signposts. They are pointing forward. They're pointing to the world that we were ultimately made for. And so after establishing his arguments for the existence of God, he then looks at the New Testament and who is Jesus? You know, the ultimate question that distinguishes between all of the different religions, because pretty much every single religion has got something to say as to who Jesus was. And if you say Jesus is God, you found Christianity. And Lewis puts forward an argument against something that he heard a lot in his time, and I'm sure you've heard from time to time as well. He says, we can't do with people who say that well, I'll admit Jesus was a great teacher, but I won't accept him and his claims to be God. Because he did. There's no way of getting out of it. He forgave sins, but not just to those people who had offended him. He said to person A, your sins are forgiven when those sins were committed against person B. And Jesus acted as though he was the one chiefly sinned against, like he was God. But people will say, no, 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 he was just a great teacher. And Lewis offers something that is commonly known as the trilemma. He didn't invent this, but he certainly popularized it. He also stole it a little bit from G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would be not a great moral teacher. 
he'd either be a lunatic on the level of a, of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or would he be the devil from hell? You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the trilemma. He is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. Now, I said I was going to speak a little bit about the apologetic arguments that Lewis put forward. Uh, but I can go way outside of mere Christianity. Because Lewis actually even said in God in the Dock, most of my books are evangelistic. He wrote a sci-fi trilogy. It's often called the Ransom series or, or the Cosmic Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra, and That Hideous Strength. And underneath those books, he's exploring the relationship between humanity and science and what happens when, rather than accepting reality and conforming our wills to it, when it goes back the other way, when we try and control reality and the dark places that it takes us. He also wrote other fictional works like the Screwtape Letters, which are fictitious exchanges between a senior demon and a junior demon. Uh, he wrote The Great Divorce, which is another fictional piece about souls being uh, allowed to visit heaven from hell and seeing if they would still choose to return to hell. And of course, The Chronicles of Narnia, which I think most people are familiar with. And Lewis saw the power of using, he called it romance. We, we might call it fiction or just uh, all, the, all of these kinds of books in general as a means for communicating Christian truth, but in a, in a slightly subtle way. This is what he wrote. He wrote an essay called, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say What's Best to Be Said. He said, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation can freeze feelings. And reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it was something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one couldn't make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. It's that last section there. He says, Let's take Christianity and let's going to strip it from its Sunday school associations and present something that is based in that, but under different symbols, so that when people's watchful dragons, people that are resistant to the faith, they, they will consume this story and they will imbibe something of a Christian worldview and actually experience uh, the, the gospel story in its potency because it's stealing past the things that normally prevent them from hearing it and receiving it in its full potency both intellectually and imaginatively. Now, my time is just about up. And I'd like to say that Lewis predicted that nobody would be reading him long after his death. And he had a secretary at the end of his life, an American, called Walter Hooper. And he disagreed. He told Jack that he thought his popularity would only increase after his death. And Walter was right. And Walter said, I had many arguments with C.S. Lewis. 
this was the only one where I won. And so hopefully over the course of this talk, you can see why Lewis was such a successful evangelist, such a successful apostle to the skeptics, because he engaged both reason and imagination. You read Lewis and he satisfies your reason and he ignites your imagination. Because Lewis knew that you needed both. You need the mind and the imagination. He called the former, the mind, the organ of truth. And he called imagination the organ of meaning. He spoke to his audience in a language that they could understand and using media that they had available to them at the time, in this case, radio and books. And he also didn't restrict himself to just one kind of evangelization. He used whatever would get the job done, whether it was direct apologetics or his fiction work. And through his apologetic work, but especially his fiction, Jack would always invite his readers to step into the Christian worldview, even just tentatively, to try on his spectacles, so to speak, and to see the world from a Christian point of view and see if it made sense. Because he hoped that if they did this, they would come to see what he also saw. He wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let's end in prayer. And I actually stole this from the Episcopal Church. They have a, a collect specifically for Lewis. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God of searching truth and surpassing beauty, we give you thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, who sanctified imagination and lit fires of faith in young and old alike. Lord, surprise us also with your joy and draw us into that new and abundant life, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope you found that interesting. We're now only a few weeks away from starting Till We Have Faces, but in the meantime, I'll try and post something each Tuesday, when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers.